Yes. So basically, it's the same amount every month, all year round. So that's it. Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Today, I spoke with Clinton Pratt. Clinton Pratt maintains a successful studio in Cincinnati and has 20 years' experience with students of all ages and skill levels. He's an active member of MTNA and Ohio MTA and has served on local and state boards. Clinton has been a nationally certified teacher for 15 years and received the honor of Teacher of the Year for his district in 2016. He has given presentations on multiple topics at local and state conferences, MTNA, and the National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy. He has been published in American Music Teacher, and he currently sits on the editorial committee for the journal as well. Clinton is an experienced educator, not only as an RCM examiner, but also for numerous other festivals and competitions. Clinton's diverse background includes a master's degree in piano and further training in jazz, recreational music making, Alexander Technique, and Dalcro's Eurythmics. Clinton prides himself as being an expert at studio policies, often helping other teachers become more efficient, organized, and less stressed. Don't mistake his organizational skills as always being so serious, though. His students laugh and have fun in lessons, especially while working on their annual multimedia concert, which fuses music with art, movement, and videos. Hope you enjoy the interview. Clinton, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Today, we're going to talk about studio management, which is a topic that you've done a lot of workshops about and have helped a lot of other teachers with. So one of the most important questions on piano teachers' minds in this topic is when to ask for payment. I know there are some teachers who do beginning of the month, um, some do per semester, and then there's a very tiny bit who do um, at the end of each lesson or at the end of each month. I don't think that's as common. In your studio, you keep it simple and use what is called a flat fee. Can you talk about how the flat fee system works and why you prefer this method of payment collection? Yes. So basically, it's the same amount every month, all year round. So that's it. Um, everything is included. So there's no other fees. Um, books, music, materials, all the awards, um, events, recitals, everything's included. It's just a flat fee. Um, so it's more like a membership fee, uh, um, the tuition. So um there's lots of benefits, but one of the main ones is clients start to see it as more of a, you know, more like a membership in a community versus, oh, I'm paying for a certain number of lessons. And also, there's no adjustments. So no credits, no refunds. Um, wow. It's just a flat fee. So it's simple. They pay the same amount every month, all year round. Wow. And so you've never had any pushback about the summer? Right. Okay. So summer is like a whole nother topic. Oh, um, okay. But yeah. And, and we might go into that later um, with like scheduling or whatever. But um, the way I do it is in the summer, there are six lessons. So everyone gets six lessons in the summer um, during like that 12 week period. Mm -hmm. So it's fewer lessons, but uh, the fee remains the same because it's already been figured out for the whole year and divided by the months. So if people want to have vacations, time off, they go to their camps, they, you know, want a break from practicing or whatever, it's fine because 
we're not really having a lesson every week anyway. Um, so it's already just figured out that way. Yeah. That was going to be my next follow-up question. When you're figuring out what rate to charge every month, how, how much of that is based on sort of ballparking? Well, if there's this many holidays in the year, there's this amount in the summer, they're probably going to do X number of lessons. Is that kind of how you figure out per month? Right, exactly. So, and I also, I created a online tuition calculator for teachers. So we, uh, we can share that too. Yeah, I'll make sure I put um, that in the show notes. Plus like, I'm a big nerd. So I love like the math and the numbers and how all that works out. <laughs> but yeah, so basically, you know, um, you plan the calendar ahead of time. So you block out um, vacations and holidays and whatever time you want to have off. Um, and then you manipulate it so that there's the same number of Mondays as Tuesdays and Wednesdays, etc. Um, so that might just be like, get rid of a, a random Wednesday because there was one more Wednesday than other days. Um, and then uh, you decide how many set number of lessons for the summer. So you add up all those. Um, then I actually subtract for like an estimated number of missed lessons. So, you know, oh, maybe like three, four, five, whatever that is. Um, and then that's how I figure out the cost. Um, figuring out here's the number of lessons, multiply it by whatever your rate is, add in other fees, like what the, the average cost of materials would be for each student, and then divide by 12. Wow. Okay. So when you're estimating how many lessons you expect the families to miss um, beyond holidays that the public schools observe how much do you assume that you slash the other student will have to miss yeah well yeah that, that's a good question i my number is usually three to five so and you know over time you can adjust it but just in my experience that's about how how much the average person misses Wait, three so to three five to... over the course of what duration of time 12 months okay okay yeah so, you know, they might miss more. That's fine. They might miss less. That's fine. Um, but it just is what it is. Yeah. And if they don't miss any, does that mean they get three to five lessons essentially for free? That's an excellent question. So, yes, technically, technically, right? So teachers might be thinking, well, wait, if they come to every lesson, then I'm, I'm making less because I'm subtracting that from what I'm charging. So what you can do is reverse engineer it. So once you figure out your tuition, ask yourself, okay, if they come to every lesson, am I okay getting this amount every month? Uh, if it seems low, then just up the rate. So in other words, all the math of figuring out everything, you know, I don't publish that anywhere. That's not in the policy. So you can do that however you want. I don't say this is the lesson rate. This is how many there are. I just say, here's the tuition mm -hmm. and here's the calendar. So you come when you can and this is, this is what you pay. Yeah, but I think even if you don't say how much each lesson is, the parents are still aware of the philosophy behind the flat fee. And I think it would in the parents' minds incentivize them to not want to miss lessons and to in a lot of situations like, oh, this kid has baseball, things that for other teachers who don't use the flat fee, parents would be free to always 
message the teachers and say, oh, can we reschedule in your system? You incentivize not missing because if they attend all their lessons or cancel fewer than three to five times, they do essentially get free lessons. So I do think it incentivizes the behavior we want. And at least I can speak for myself as a teacher. I would be willing to pay to, to do a few lessons a year for free for a family in exchange for them never canceling. Exactly. Yes, that's a huge benefit. I noticed attendance got way better as soon as I started doing this because they're not just going to say, oh, well, we have a birthday party. Can we reschedule? Right. Because they know the answer is going to be no. Yeah. Mm. So one obvious advantage of this is that it drastically simplifies how much time you spend figuring out how much to charge them. But you still do need to at some point tell them how much they owe and accept payment. I know there are some teachers who do this in different ways. Some casually provide the bill kind of over email or even text. Some kind of create templates that look a little nice. And some use actual invoicing services like my music staff. How do you do this in your studio? Short answer, I don't. <laughs> okay. So uh, in, 20 years, in 20 years, I've never sent one invoice. Wow. Um, so that's because the payments are automatic. So um, I use TeacherZone, which is a studio management system. Um, and it does a whole bunch of other things too. But one thing that it does is the payments. So they put in their payment info and then the flat monthly fee which they know how much it's going to be because it's always the same, mm -hmm. just comes out of their account every month and goes into mine. That does sound somewhat comparable to what I've heard about uh, my music staff, but that seems very easy. Um, okay, then as far as the scheduling aspect of it, so since you don't really do makeups, it does make the scheduling a lot easier, but the students still have to pick a weekly time. So in terms of figuring out how to what time to schedule each student. Do you use any external services for that? Or how do you go about figuring out who gets what slot? I do the scheduling myself. Well, by the way, I own a multi-teacher studio. So there's like five teachers. Mm. So um, I, um, I interview everyone first, and then I manually assign them. So knowing from what teacher slots are open and who they might be a good fit with um and the, the student gives me their availability you know for example oh we could do tuesdays or wednesdays after four or friday such and such then i just i schedule them that way so i don't i don't do a you know a way where they just go online and book a slot yeah um i, I don't do it that way okay got it Okay, um, I want to switch gears a little bit and now talk about group lessons. So you had mentioned in, earlier in this interview, quote, everything is included in um, the flat fee. Does that include any group lessons? And can you talk about how you handle group lessons in your studio? Yeah, so it does include group lessons as well. We do um, about five to six group lessons a year. And that's just part of the program that they get. So there are certain weeks that are group weeks. And during those weeks, instead of their private lesson, they have a group class. And the groups are according to um, age and skill. Although um, the adult, the adult group is really fun. It's all the adults. So some are beginners, some have been playing for 20 years, and it's a little more social. But um, yeah, so everybody gets the group class. Um, they don't have to attend if they don't want, but that's included. 
Okay. And how do you schedule the group classes? Is that sort of at the beginning of the year, every group class for the next 12 months is already scheduled? Yeah, that's right. Everything's scheduled. Sometimes we do like a couple options. For example, like group three, which is such and such ages, you can, you know, you can do Monday at six or Thursday at four, for example. So they can, they can actually come to either or both. Um, and for my teachers, it's nice because, um, they're teaching way less, you know, if you have 20 private students, you're probably only going to have two or three groups that week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I kind of like about that is in general, thinking about group lessons, and I've been thinking about this in my own studio, sometimes parents are a little bit reluctant to try that because they assume that one-on-one -on -one lessons are better. And I recently did an interview with Dorla Aparicio on this podcast who talked about group lessons and in her studio, she goes to the complete extreme. She only offers group lessons. But in both her policy and your policy, it seems like a good way that they kind of incentivize group lessons and get kids into it is by not having it be a, an opt-in in the same way, having it be the default. And you, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to, but it's built into the program rather than manually asking each parent, do you want to do group lessons? Which I think in many cases would lead parents to be a little bit skeptical. Right. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, that's true. Sometimes they don't even know that that they want it or that they'll like it. So with with my studio, you know, hey, your group class is coming up. Um, and then usually they end up liking those and want more of them. Yeah, that um, was going to be my next question. What if they love it? Is there an option where they can add more? Or is it just since they have the flat fee, they get a certain number of group classes, whether they like it or not? <laughs> Yeah, it's just the set number because okay. of how we schedule it. Although in the summer, sometimes we do more um, and offer extra things in the summer. Like, hey, you can do this special workshop or group thing um, for an additional fee. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of teachers talk about doing group lessons in the summer a lot more than during the year. And Dorla was talking about piano camp. Um, so that makes sense. Um, OK, switching gears again. Another one that I have to, of course, ask about is the two factors that I probably in some ways ultimately most important, which is student acquisition and retention. So first, I want to talk about student acquisition. Uh, I very much enjoy the show Shark Tank. And on that show, there's a lot of times when entrepreneurs come in and will say things like, I've never paid a penny on advertising. Um, and in the music world, um, I had Deborah Howe on this podcast, who's had a full studio for decades and also has never really put any effort into advertising. And it's all just been word of mouth. So how reasonable of a goal do you think that is for teachers in general and at a macro level? And follow up to that, let's say there's a teacher who word of mouth isn't happening and their studio isn't growing as much as they would like. What adjustments do you think teachers should make and how have you handled student acquisition and marketing in your studio? Yeah, so uh, I guess it depends on a lot of factors. When I was starting out, um, I was just, trying to get started with teaching while I was still having another job. Um, so I gradually got more students just by word of mouth. And actually one of the best ways was going to a local teacher music, uh, music teacher organization meetings. Like um, MTNA? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, meeting other teachers. And then when they see like, oh, wow, there's this eager, nice new teacher, um, I'll send students their way, right? So I got students from just attending meetings and teachers knowing that there was another teacher to send students to. 
Um, and then I also got hired at studios that way too, you know, studio owners that, um, needed, you know, Hey, well, I need a teacher for Tuesdays. Can you teach at my studio? So that's how I got started and gradually grew and then eventually got on my own and then had my own studio. So yeah, I was, you know, word of mouth for a while and was full, always had a waiting list. Um, then when I expanded and wanted to have more teachers and bigger, you know, then I, um, yeah, then had to start thinking about ads and, and acquiring students, you know, paying something. Um, I've done like some Google ads, some Facebook ads. Actually, one of the best for me was lessons.com and thumbtack.com. Okay. Uh, I know some teachers have had success with that. Others absolutely hate them. Um, for me, it w works pretty good. I, I think I estimated about $25 on average to get a new enrollment oh, from those, which is pretty good. And it was a lot more than that with Google ads and Facebook ads? Yes. Okay. Yeah, definitely. In fact, yeah, Facebook, I spent hundreds just experimenting and didn't get anybody. Oh, really? Um, but I know some some people who have had success. So, you know, I'm not saying that's a bad idea. Um, it's just maybe depends on your market and depends on a lot of things, your, how you're doing your ads, what your target is. But if we're talking about a private teacher, not one who owns a big music studio with multiple teachers like you, you would recommend as far as for student acquisition, networking with other piano teachers, maybe first. And then if that doesn't work, consider purchasing ads on Thumbtack or Lessons or kind of both concurrently. Yeah, definitely networking first. Also, you know, you can offer like a referral rewards. I've done that. So asking your current clients, hey, if you refer somebody, yeah. I'll give you such and such. Yeah, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about incentivizing the behaviors you want, like with your flat fee, incentivizing no uh, absences, and in this case, incentivizing towards referrals. That's a good way to do it. But that's mm -hmm. interesting to hear you say that Lessons.com and Thumbtack were, out of all the types of ads you ran, the one that were most successful. Have you ever tried a, a physical newspaper? No, I have not. Nothing physical. Okay. Um, well, yeah, I've tried thumbtack before i have not tried lessons.com um interesting um okay then of course the close cousin of student um acquisition is student retention and this is an area where you've clearly been very successful on your website i read that the average retention rate in your studio is five years that's very impressive um so in most of the kind of dialogue that i see surrounding student retention the conversation is very much about basically just like teaching style and approach. And I'm sure ultimately that is what it comes down to because students want to continue lessons if they like the teacher. But I'm also interested in like, since today's conversation is about studio management and more the business side of thing, things, is, is there any type of way that like studio policies can help with retention or any strategies you would suggest to building student retention that go beyond just being a really good teacher? Yeah, um, as far as policies, I, I'm i not sure because, you know, I'm not going to say you have to stay for five years. No, of course. Si not. Sign this contract. Um, so I'm not sure about. But I do think it's possible that with your flat fee system, 
parents don't feel as sort of bogged down with logistics. And so that might make them, when they're sort of going through their itinerary of all the things cluttering their mind, less likely to feel like, oh, these piano lessons are such a headache to work out. Okay, keep it going. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Right. So just having simple, you know, it's a flat fee. Mm -hmm. um, if you need to cancel, just let me know. Um, you know, we don't have to worry. We're not rescheduling. We're not doing credits. Yeah, definitely. I guess that does help. I didn't think about that. Um, another thing for retention is um, to have unique offerings. You know, so what what do you do or what do you have that other teachers don't? Um, like for my studio, we have uh, this benchmark program, which is like an achievement program, like karate belts. And um, how does that have... program work? <laughs> um, yeah, so they do several things in different categories in order to move on to the next level. Um, so there's technique and memorizing pieces and ear skills and sight reading and improv and experience points. So, um, yeah, it's fun. And then it has the whole, since my studio is piano sensei and kind of has like a Japanese theme that's kind of related to martial arts and karate belts and all that. Um, so, Having something unique, um, people feel like they're a part of something that's, you know, different and interesting. Um, and just the sense of community, um, you know, they're not just like coming to take a piano lesson. They're, you know, they have the group class, so they see other students and they're all like working towards the their next achievement in the benchmark program. Um, and a benefit of a multi-teacher studio also is like, if something is not working out between one teacher and student, they can change teachers. That's true. You know, and still stay in the yeah. studio. So they, they, so we retain them even if, you know, something needs to be adjusted a little bit. Yeah. I, uh, you mentioned the importance of a community. When I had Deborah Howe on this podcast, who I mentioned earlier and asked about student retention, that was also her advice of creating a community. And I do think the group lessons kind of do that and what you're describing with the benchmark program kind of does that because they see how they kind of stack up not in a hostile competitive way but they at least are aware of what the other students are doing and it does foster a sense of community that could contribute to retention uh, do you have any other advice for our listeners working towards studio management and to borrow a phrase from you quote migraine free management <laughs> yeah so one thing is um be strict but sympathetic so firm but pleasant right so it's always um you know oh i'm sorry i can't do that but but you smile you know <laughs> so hey can we do this because we got a birthday party and blah blah blah. you know no i'm sorry but you know have fun and i'll see you next week that type of thing um another one oh another thing i was going to say earlier was um for payments um i see this a lot where teachers have payments due by a certain lesson like payments are due by the first lesson of the month um but then what happens if there's no lesson the first week because it's canceled or there's a holiday you know so the teacher is expecting to get paid by like the seventh maybe but um what if there's no lesson until the 13th right so i would encourage people to make make a tuition due date an actual date like oh. it's due by the it's due by the seventh or it's it's due by the first not bring it to yeah. your first yeah. lesson independent of whether there's a holiday or a yeah. yeah right because you still want to get paid even if there's not a lesson that week or maybe there's not a lesson for two weeks for some reason right 
and um another thing about the about payments is um i see a lot payment is due the first but there's a late fee after the seventh okay well what that really means is payment is due the seventh because why can't you just pay the sixth yeah so I, if you're gonna have a if you're gonna have a late fee then it, it should be late when it's late which is after it's due right so if it's due the first then there's a late fee however you can avoid all that by just doing automatic payments then then it's not late i actually ha i do make a couple of exceptions if somebody you know well we really want to pay by check we'll write you a check that's fine but then if it's late more than once then they have to go on automatic payments a quick follow-up question to earlier when you were saying be firm but sympathetic um i didn't get to ask this earlier but when you're trying to be firm about the no cancellations does that include situations that are truly outside of the family's control like a medical emergency or death in the family how do you handle things like that yep i know it sounds horrible but <laughs> okay. if you can't come you can't come okay. see you next time um and that is it, firm. even even for the instructor so if i can't go i just cancel hey i had something come up but there's no lesson today um and i have um when i do like if i give a presentation and have like slides and stuff. I have images, like screenshots of actual text messages from parents. And so that, like, it's proof, I'm not lying. Like when I say, hey, I have to cancel, I'm not feeling well. Like everybody, the same response from everyone is like, oh, I hope you feel better, see you next week. Everybody, nobody says, oh, well, when are we gonna reschedule? Or, oh, are you gonna credit my account? because it's just understood that this is just how it works that's what they knew they were signing into from the get-go right and you know i have to say that in my policy it does say very diplomatically um that missed lessons have already been taken into account in the formulation so it's not just like you're paying every week and then you might not get something you know, it's it's already been figured in to yeah, the, to they the cost. They can assume if there's a medical emergency that factors into the three to five missed lessons that you were mentioning earlier. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So overall, of course, so the, today we really focused on the kind of financial and business administrative side of piano teaching. This is ultimately not why any of us, including I'm sure you, became a piano teacher in the first place. And before this interview, I did a big deep dive of your social media posts. Um, and you obviously have just as much to say, if not more, about all of the rewarding parts of piano teaching as you do about these administrative aspects that we talked about today. Can you give our listeners a sense of what other resources you provide for piano teachers and what you're up to nowadays and where everyone can go to learn more about you? Yes. And I did want to say um, real quick that, yeah, everything is about, you know, teaching music, building relationships, um, fostering creativity, um, helping to create better humans, you know, that's what we do. So all of this business stuff in studio management, we have to do that um, so that everything runs smooth and then we can focus on, you know, what's really important. So I did want to say that. <laughs> um, and yes, um, if you go to, uh, so my website, pianosensei.com slash teacher dash resources, um, there I have the tuition calculator that I was talking about. So if teachers want to like put in their numbers and play with that, um, there's also a downloadable version if you want to handwrite it. Um, and then I also have like 
workshops that I do. If you want to book me for a workshop or reach out to me, you can contact me there. That's very, very helpful. Well, Quentin, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. That was a lot of helpful feedback. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time.